Hello, writers, researchers, family historians, and explorians of secret tales. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, when I was researching today's guest, Vanessa Chan, the theme of hidden stories came up a few times with her. And I I think that in some ways, that might be one of the two or three guiding themes of this entire podcast. And when I think about our guests, so many of them have been authors who have told their own version of hidden stories, you know, whether it's through historical fiction or memoir or autofiction or another form. And it just started making me wonder if this might be, in fact, one of the top guiding purposes of literature in general, um, you know, to unearth stories and bring them to the surface so that they're, they're heard and seen. I hadn't quite ever thought of that, strangely enough. And I was thinking about Maya Angelou's famous quote, where she said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And I've always thought of that in terms of an individual person's anguish, but I think it goes beyond that, of course. You know, it can be a country's anguish, an institution's anguish, a family's anguish, a town's anguish, you know, and and, and, and stories are like volcanoes, you know, they want to burst out. And one way to view life is that we're, we're, we're walking on top of volcanoes in some ways. So there's so many of them that we perhaps don't even realize uh, that they're in our midst. So what do you think about that? I, I do love that image, you know, and this idea of many volcanoes feels very alive and vivid to me, actually. Uh, you know, I was thinking like volcanoes of our ancestors making, our parents making, our own making. And there's so much in our lives that we don't have control over. Obviously, you know, things that existed before we were born or things that come into our life that don't have anything to do with the choices that we make, uh, you know, also the consequences of who we tie ourselves to, you know, friends lovers, whomever, uh, or even the people that we birth, right? So I, I like this topic a lot because um, we also don't get to choose the families that we're born into or how they handle family stories and family secrets. And then, of course, we're shaped and molded by what's handed down to us, even when we do have the power to break patterns. So it totally makes sense to me, you know, that what we write and what we're drawn to oftentimes do circle hidden secrets. Yeah, there's an old adage that history is written by the victors, of course. So, so, so a dominant culture has a way of asserting its version of history to the exclusion of others. And then there are, you know, more personal forces that keep a story down, like the prevalent morals of a culture or a shameful act committed by a, a family member. And I actually thought of three books by the many guests we've had on whose, whose stories reveal different types of hidden stories. I'm thinking about Isabel Cañas, for example, and how in The Vampires of El Norte, the vampires serve as an analogy of the avarice of American settler colonialism. So she used, you know, gothic horror as a tool to unearth stories. And then Jim and Han used the voice of this defiant and funny 105-year-old ghost who stirs up family dramas in her novel, The Apology. But, but sometimes, you know, a book is a very literal and direct unearthing. And I was thinking about Cheryl Head's novel, Time's Undoing, where she explored what happened to her grandfather, who was killed in 1929 by Birmingham police and the ripple effect that that had on future generations, but through a novel. So, you know, hidden stories just take on so many different forms from family secrets to violent, you know, dispossession and colonialism to, you know, a covered up murder. Yeah, exactly. And that's so true. Like uh, Cheryl's book, 
that was this novel based on a true story. And of course, I'm always thinking about memoir and how many stories exist uh, about secrets of identity. You know, there's been many memoirs surrounding adoption or people finding out the truth of their DNA being uncovered, of course, because of Ancestry.com and 23andMe. And then there's secrets surrounding abuse, right? And that's often held by both the perpetrators and the victims, uh, but also by people who are complicit in their lives. And so I was thinking, you know, so true what you're saying, like all histories have agendas and each of us plays a role in what gets hidden and what gets told, or I should say what remains hidden. Uh, and I love this topic too, because the reason I love memoir so much is because I think it's so brave to come out and unearth stories that we inherit, right? It's like, they're not ours to hold or to keep, you know, or maybe not even inherit, like things that have been done to us, things that happen to us. And then, you know, in the past, I've felt anyway, and this is still true, that people get demonized for telling those truths. That said, now I think we have turned more of a corner. And in part, that's because of memoir, you know, like these secret tellers are coming out, and then they're becoming heroes and heroines, not necessarily in everyone's eyes, but certainly to many. And it's also opening up possibilities for other people to see their own truths in those stories. I, I always think, and this is a truism, of course, you know, what gets hidden and stays hidden requires an agreement, but there's also a power dynamic. Uh, and so, so much of unearthing uh, what's hidden is about honoring the voice and the experience of the oppressed. And that's the person who's been mandated to stay silent. Uh, so I think it's really a time for us to be celebrating, you know, the way story specifically works against that cultural force of silencing. Definitely. Yeah, we're seeing this with today's battles over banned books, of course. And there, you know, there are so many stories still untold, you know, because of racism and sexism and ageism and homophobia and transphobia, you know, but, you know, I, I like to think that fortunately, we've also come a long way because of the hidden stories that are told. It's sometimes easy to forget that. But, you know, I, I was speaking with an older man the other day, and he said, there wasn't any sexual abuse when he was growing up, and now it's everywhere. So he, he, <laughs> he viewed the world as getting worse as a result. And, and I told him that there actually was probably a lot of sexual abuse when he was growing up, or certainly there was, but those stories just weren't told. They didn't have a way to be told. And, you know, in fact, you know, stories of sexual abuse didn't really enter the mainstream until the 70s or the 80s or maybe even after that. Um, so our whole awareness of that issue is very, you know, recently kind of unearthed uh, historically. And the, and the same thing, when I was thinking, goes for addiction stories, you know, which are so commonplace now, of course. But, you know, and as a result of those stories being commonplace, people can get help for their addiction and talk about it without shame. And it just ties together for me the ways we progress because of the hidden stories that are revealed. You know, hidden stories help us better understand the past we have in common, and they, they help us become more connected. Yeah, so, so, so true. And that's interesting to me, that guy and many other people, you know, who think that something didn't exist because they couldn't see it or didn't know about it, or more likely because it got swept under the rug or intentionally hidden. And I've heard people say this over the years about things not limited to, but I'm just thinking of autism. Like people wonder aloud, like, why was there no autism in the past? But of course there was, you know, and a lot of those people were either institutionalized or considered outcasts or oddballs. And, and this is just true of everything. You know, women historically had so little agency and 
feared not being believed. And so, of course, there was very little to no recourse to talk about abuse. Children were to be seen, not heard. You know, rape was legal in most states. I mean, in in the context of matrimony, right? So I think that one of the primary reasons that memoir is such a cultural force for good is because it does normalize a lot of horrors, frankly. And it's awful that we have so much bad human behavior in this world. Uh, but at least through story, people don't have to feel so alone. And and I've also, of course, uh, experienced this reclaiming that happens for people when they unearth these secrets, name these secrets, and, and go public with these secrets. You know, it's a way of shedding them in a, a sense and then taking the power back. Uh, and I know it's it's healing and it's also life-changing. Yeah, and you, you know, Brooke, this is just making me think, bringing about my inner teacher, <laughs> that I think that this is a good moment to give a writing prompt. So I'm going to invite listeners to think of one hidden story that is untold in your life. So this can be a personal story. Uh, it can be about the life of your family or a story you know about that is part of something bigger, you know, a story that remains untold because of a cultural or, or political agenda or because it's something, you know, the people, you know, don't want to acknowledge. So you don't, you don't have to tell anyone this story, just, just identify a story and write it for yourself if you feel like it, and then see if it's something that accumulates its own power so that maybe you do want to share it with another or publish it. So I'll leave you with that writing prompt, and I look forward to thinking more about hidden stories after this short break, um, and we'll join our guest, Vanessa Chan, for more. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Vanessa Chan, because it's always interesting to me when I encounter a writer in my tiny world of tiny stories, the genre of flash fiction, and then see a flash writer write a, a longer work of note. And that, that's the case with Vanessa, whose debut novel, The Storm We Made, is coming out in January. And it's a novel about many things, but the story is spawned by the unlikeliest of spies, a discontent mother and wife in 1930s British Malaya, who, in becoming a spy for the Japanese, unwittingly ushers in the most violent war her country has ever seen. Uh, Vanessa's other work has been published in Esquire, Conjunctions, Electric Lit, Kenyon Review, and more. And her fiction has been spotlighted in Best Small Fictions and selected for the Wigleaf Top 50, which, if you don't know, are kind of like the National Book Award for Flash Fiction. Vanessa grew up in Malaysia and is now based in mostly in Brooklyn. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Vanessa, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I first encountered you as a flash fiction writer, and then I was, I was happy to hear that you'd written this novel. I don't know if you, you started with flash, but I wondered if you could tell us about your journey as a writer and if writing the short stuff influenced this longer work in, in any way. Yeah, so... I will say that I never thought that I would write a novel. I think this is a thing that a lot of first-time novelists say, but, you know, I really, you know, I love flash. I love short stories. And I, you know, started an MFA program writing primarily short stories. And The Storm We Made was actually a short story, an assignment uh, in a class, uh, sort of a final assignment for the semester, kind of a throwaway in a class by Marie Helene Bertino, uh, who herself has written both, you know, short and long fiction. And uh, it was a sort of a throwaway assignment. Um, I was just trying to get it done to get through the end of the semester. I don't know if you know th this, but in grad school, you, you don't have grades. You just turn something in and you get an A, uh, which is great. So I just turned it in and I was like, okay, we're done. It's moving on. 
And Marie sent me this handwritten note that said, you know, I think that you have the beginning of a novel here. Maybe you want to keep going. And I love this so much. And uh, and even then I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to do this. Uh, but then the pandemic happened. I didn't have anything else to do. And, <laughs> you know, a year later, there were 350 pages. But yeah, I was very much a short fiction writer. I still am a short fiction writer and a flash fiction writer. They're my first love. Um, I have a collection under contract as well. And I um, I love the way that short and flash fiction require so much discipline because you have to be able to use the limits and parameters of the narrative to kind of wrap things up and end things. You don't kind of, you have less almost freedom to meander in the way that you do with a novel. And I think it requires a lot of skill. Undoubtedly. Yeah. We've, we've discussed that in previous uh, episodes that we've done on that. Um, So I'm, I'm curious, Vanessa, the title of your novel is the storm we made. And we usually think of storms as an external force that happens to us, but your title reverses that. So could you talk a bit more about why you chose the title and how it's spawned by the story? Okay. So there's like a, um, a what really happened answer and then like a PR answer. <laughs> Tell us the what really happened. <laughs> I'm going to give you both. Yay. Okay. So the the more serious answer is that a storm can be many things, right? There's just, there's an internal storm and an external storm. Malaysia is a very stormy country. So there's an external storm, but also the characters inside are facing a lot of strife and a lot of rage and a lot of different emotions. And so the storm is metaphorical. Uh, as well. What really happened, though, is if we had, if I had my way, my novel would have gone in submission titled Novel Novel, because I did not have a title for this novel for as long as I was writing it. And my wonderful agents, Michelle Brower and Stephanie Delman, refused to let it go out, called Novel Novel, um, because <laughs> that would be a bad idea, as you would expect. So we came up with a couple different titles the day before we went on submission and picked a title uh, that wasn't the storm we made. That was something else. And within 12 hours, somebody did a cover reveal with a title that was almost exactly the title that I had picked. And we were like, well, let's go to plan B. Uh, I always thought that this title would change. Uh, You know, when it went to an editor that happens sometimes with novels, your title changes. But then we decided we all liked it and I love it and it stayed. Um, So thank you to my agents for not allowing me to go out uh, with a title, Novel Novel. Well, Vanessa, on on your website, I noticed that you say you teach uh, workshops focus less on specific craft rules and more on excavating the hidden stories we're afraid to write. And and this is a hidden story, both because it's a story about World War II that most people don't know, uh, but also because it's based in part on your family history. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your emphasis on not only excavating hidden stories in your teaching, but in your writing life. That is such a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, I think as a function of who I am, which is, you know, uh, a Malaysian, a person born in a post-colonial country who now lives abroad, but is still very much, you know, attached to my home country. I go back to it all the time. And one of maybe a handful of writers from Malaysia uh, on a world stage. I think, 
I don't know if this is weird or arrogant to say, but I think I am a hidden story. I, I just, they're not many people from Malaysia just out there doing stuff. And that is a function of, you know, there's not, not a lot of exposure to our stories, not a lot of exposure to our history, and there's not a lot of exposure to our people. And um, I have always been interested uh, in telling the stories of my home country, not just the history, this novel is historical, but in my short fiction, just, you know, what it's like growing up in hot and sweaty, uh, you know, in a post-colonial country that has a lot of um, its own unique idiosyncrasies. And, uh, you know, I think as um, even as a teacher, I am less interested in, in rules. I do think, you know, there are certain craft things that you can learn to build a baseline for your writing. But I think everyone has stories that um, only they can tell. And I'm interested in uh, finding out for myself and for other people, what are the stories that you yourself can tell? That takes a long time to get to. Even for me, I was writing stories um, that were not only stories that I can tell for a really long time until um, until the last couple of years. And those are the stories that, you know, have since been published. I'm really curious about the evolution of this novel. Uh, I'm wondering, was much of this history shared with you growing up or later as an adult? Uh, and then also how much research did you have to do to fill in the gaps? Sure. Um, you know, but to kind of back up a little bit further, like most writers this wasn't the first novel that i attempted in my in my uh more angry 20s i tried to write an autofiction novel about how much i hated all my coworkers that didn't go very well so that's sort of sitting in a drawer <laughs> but um with regards with, to this novel it's in the author note but you know it's i i say i think that uh, something like my, our grandparents love us by not speaking. Um, they're very, you know, reticent. The survivors of World War II and the Japanese occupation, my grandparents and other people's grandparents are very reluctant to talk about the time frame because it was very traumatic, right? And so if you were to ask my grandmother, who is, you know, pretty chatty woman, what life was like at the time, if you asked her directly, uh, she would just tell me to mind my business, go back to my chores, leave her alone, let her live her life. But, you know, like I said, she's also a very chatty woman. And so I learned quite young that, you know, if I just let her do her thing, run her day and just hang out with her, I hung out with them a lot. I'm the oldest grandchild on that side. And I like to say I'm the favorite uh, and there's no one else here to object. So I think I am the favorite grandchild. But I spent a lot of time with them. And if I let her talk her talk, she would tell me all these, you know, absolutely incredible stories, some really tragic, you know, about how, the family had to mix in tapioca and paper with their rice rations in order to survive. She had, there were 10 of them, children and then the parents. Uh, but also, you know, stories about how they, you know, cut holes in their fences, that connecting houses with their neighbors and would sneak into each other's homes to have dance parties after curfew. And sort of, I collected all of these stories. They became a part of me as they do. And, you know, went through my life, lived 15 different lives, had all kinds of different jobs, and then I think finally was ready to write. And these are the stories that became the backdrop of the storm we made and the setting, so to speak. When I was writing most of the first draft, libraries and archives were shut down. This is a book that was born in the earliest days of the pandemic. So a lot of the things 
a lot of what I relied on was, you know, these stories that I had and I used, you know, research to fill in things like dates of battles and timeline and actual history that happened. But a lot of like a lot of other things, a lot of um, history about Malaysia and about Malaysian people, all of the stories are not really available to be researched. There isn't a ton of, you know, survivor material from just Malaysians on the ground who weren't soldiers for a lot of different reasons. And so um, I had to be content with the stories that my family told me mixed in with, you know, other um, research that I could do for dates and for things that had Westerners involved. So the labor camp in my novel is is one of the characters ends up in a labor camp. I could do a lot of research into that because that labor camp also contained Europeans. In most cases, when Europeans were not involved, there isn't a lot of available research online. Well, Vanessa, I'm very intrigued by the word or the phrase inherited pain, which was in your, your press materials and how you built this novel in part, as you said, around around the choices we make uh, that reverberate through the generations of our families and communities in ways we often can't predict. I thought that was so, such an interesting way to think about constructing a story around that. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about how choices reverberate and contribute to inherited pain in this novel. You know, I think um, at a top level, you know, the novel is about uh, a woman named Cecily who, you know, in order to get some kind of fulfillment and to uh, find some kind of happiness and ambition, um, becomes a spy for a competing colonizer, colonizing force that ends up, you know, bringing a lot of suffering to her family, her community, and the country. And I don't think she could have predicted, you know, the ideology that was given to her that this was a, this was a nation that Japan was going to build and Asia built for Asians, uh, ruled by people like them, seemed at the time, you know, after Malaysia having been colonized for a hundred years by the British, like it could be a good idea. She could never have predicted how violent the Japanese uh, occupiers were going to be and how that would impact her family. On a more broad level though, I think I'm just really interested in both choices and also people just living their lives against larger backdrops of things. I, you know, I wanted to write a story about a family going through both macro level things a war, pain and suffering, but also daily minutiae, you know, irritations that they have with each other, um, gossip that the neighbors had, that, that the neighbors did, you know, obsessions, crushes, romances, all the things that you, uh, we as humans continue to have no matter what's going on in the larger world. I think that's the same. I always think that, you know, if our grandchildren our great-grandchildren were to ask us, you know, grandma, grandpa, what was life like during the pandemic? We'd be like, it was not great, but also we kind of did our thing. Uh, We still had our same little fights. We still had our same little petty grievances um, against a backdrop of a very large and terrible event. And uh, I'm just very preoccupied with, I think, that sort of dichotomy. 
Well, Vanessa, um, the style of your debut is an amalgam of forms. It's a literary novel. It's a historical novel, a love novel, a war story, a page turner. And so did you set out to combine genres? And I'm curious uh, what some of the chief influences for you might have been, you know, if you were conscientious of being literary, for instance, you know, and what might have inspired you? Honestly, when I started this novel, this novel was a story about three sad children living through a war, because that's sort of what I had access to. Those were the stories that I had been told, you know, and I thought that it would be sort of a, actually, I wasn't even thinking that much about genre. I was just like, I'm going to see what I can get on a page. Then my personal circumstances changed, uh, because again, I mentioned I was writing this during the pandemic. And during this time, you know, like a lot of people, I went through a lot of personal griefs, my mother passed, my uncle passed, I couldn't, we were all locked down, I couldn't go home. And so I was kind of writing about my family, about home without being able to go home. And, you know, this might sound dramatic, but I am, I can be a bit of a dramatic person. And I was like, this is so, this is a tragic, tragic contradiction, you know, to write, to have, to be writing so much about home without being able to go to it. And so I just decided I needed to give myself a character who could run around and do good and bad things and make like bad, ridiculous decisions because I wanted to give myself, well, my character, the agency that I felt I didn't have at the time. And I was like, I love spy TV. Like I love like a good, like CIA double agent, bad television show. Like I loved alias. I loved all these like not great TV shows. And I was like, fine, I'll make the mother a spy. That's the job that I'm going to give her. And I can take this out later. Like this is just for me to have some fun and to like fully imagine this character because I'm neither a mother nor a spy. So it's just me, you know, like making stuff up and having her run around and be ridiculous. Uh, Lo and behold, because that is what stories do. It became, and she became the emotional core of the novel. And then all of a sudden (laughs) I had a war novel that was like a spy with some thriller elements. Uh, But because at heart I am kind of like a literary writer, I'm kind of interested in writing on the, like, the line and the language, then we had uh, a novel with many genres that we sometimes have trouble deciding which tags to put in. You know, publishers have this like metadata where they like to like put things in boxes and they have sometimes have trouble with this novel because they can't decide which genre it fits into. Vanessa, you've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times and, um, you know, I'm curious about going a little bit further with that because it, it was a time when you, you know, experienced you know, significant personal loss, your mother and uncle passed away and you weren't able to return home to Malaysia because of travel restrictions. So I'm curious how the pandemic and your, you know, the impact of your grief informed your writing. And I don't know, did it even serve as a channel to draw out this story or to enter this story? Grant, I was so angry. And so, yes, it was a, it was a great channel. Um, I also think that, you know, having, having a purpose, like waking up every morning to write this novel was um, kind of like a great 
It was a savior to me. It gave me something to do. It also gave me um, the writing ritual that I continue now. You know, instead of just write, waking up every day to write, I gave myself sort of like a, an amusing, superstitious ritual, which was really simple. It was just that I had to hit 888 words a day. Um, eight is my favorite number because it's symmetrical, because it's lucky to Chinese people. My Part of my family is Chinese. And everyone was doing a thousand words a day at the time. You know, shout out to Jamie Attenberg. And I uh, decided I would do 888 words a day because I just wanted to be contrary and have authority issues. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my 888 would sometimes be 1,888, which was great. And so I continue that ritual now. I Anytime I sit down to write, which has been less frequent lately because I have had all these other things to do, but I try to hit 888 words and um, I enjoy that. And uh, I think giving myself silly little rituals and just getting up in the morning to write helped me get through, you know, being locked down in a New York City apartment with no end in sight. Well, Vanessa, as one who leads an organization focused on people writing 1,677 words a day in the month of November, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm really big into your 888. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to form a whole organization and movement around this. I think that's a really, you know, wonderful way to think about writing. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, Brooke, at one point we covered the trend that Spotify was on the rise and moving into podcasts and audiobooks. And Spotify actually specifically carries our podcast, and, and we've seen a rise in listenership there. So it seemed like a good thing, despite rumblings from artists about the flow of Spotify's money, specifically that they either weren't paying artists or weren't paying artists enough, and even more specifically that they were paying people like Joe Rogan millions of dollars to carry his podcast. So now it seems the consequence of that is raining down on them a bit since they, they recently announced that they're going to lay off about 20% of their staff, which is hundreds of people and always a really hard thing to see. Yeah, and the New York Times piece on this says that uh, in the first nine months of 2023, Spotify lost $462 million, ouch, uh, which is more than double uh, the loss in the same period in 2022, but still like loss after loss, not great. Uh, and apparently the fallout probably of too much growth too quickly. I was particularly struck by a line in the article, which was a quote from Spotify's CEO in which he said, the round of layoffs was not a surprise, but it was sooner and larger than they expected. Uh, the move was welcomed by investors, he said, who are eager to see the company more consistently turn a profit. And I was like, hmm, the move of all these uh, layoffs is welcomed by investors. But of course, that's true <laughs> for investors because it means leaner budgets and they are probably going to make more money. Uh, but I always like to read the comments and stories like this because other people were clearly struck by that line as well. And one of the comments said, people should not lose their jobs over stock prices. Uh, but of course, that's capitalism for you. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion about how much money Spotify's CEO makes, which is $360,000 plus stocks that makes his net worth in the actual billions not millions, billions of dollars, folks. Uh, and so, you know, you have to see those layoff stories combined with this kind of inequity. And it really obviously gets people's blood boiling. 
Definitely. And, you know, since we live in the Bay Area and tech layoffs are there's happening all over the place right now, it's really worrisome. And I don't work in tech, but it's just a devastating thing for our region because I have friends who are losing their jobs and, and often it is over a stock price. And and one of my friend's comments, um, or he told me this story about how the CEO at the tech company he works for always refers to their company as a family. Mm-hmm. But the cruel joke is that once someone loses their job or is essentially kicked out of the family, they're no longer mentioned. So I think family is the wrong metaphor or perhaps the better take on this is that language matters. So if you call your employee is part of your family, then I think you should treat them like family. So news like this is really dispiriting for me, you know, as a Spotify user, because that family has built an amazing tool that I love for the music and podcasts it brings me. I agree. And, you know, it will be interesting to see where Spotify goes from here. I welcomed their expansion into podcasts and audiobooks, as I think a lot of people did. You know, I think any platform that gives Amazon a run for its money is a good thing and it's good for competition. But a lot of folks were noting in the comments in that New York Times piece that Spotify doesn't have fair payout methods. And, and Grant, you and I do this podcast for zero cost, you know, and I, I do believe that artists should get paid when they can get paid, but it's also a competitive world out there. And sometimes you do things for no money uh, in order to bring you things that do uh, bring in money, right? So there are a lot of books and podcasts and just general content out there in the world. And these big platforms that get a lot of criticism are also vehicles that give us visibility to build our platforms. And so I just find that to be a catch-22 that we fall into a lot when we talk about creation, uh, because there's the complaints and they're legitimate of authors and artists and others, you know, about having not getting paid enough or having to pay to get their work out into the world. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we're we're striving, you know, to get our messages out and to grow our visibility and our, our fan bases. And sometimes those are platforms that cost money. Yeah, definitely. And you know, if you build a business around the exploitation of others or underpaying them, then I think it's categorically an unethical business. So I, I encountered this phrase recently, excessive wealth disorder. And in fact, there's a there's a whole nonprofit called the Excessive Wealth Disorder Institute dedicated to countering, you know, our societal need for a few to take advantage of the many to pad their you know bank accounts when you know they don't need that money but they just keep accumulating it it is really a disorder and it's good to remember that we writers you know just in general tend to be vastly underpaid you know we're, we're often so desperate to get our work out there and we usually don't have the force of a union behind us so we tend not to have much negotiation power and I don't have a solution for this. I just want everyone to be aware of this um, throughout the writing life and to put pressure on, on, the, on the sources of wealth to create a more equitable world because it's, it, it is possible. Um, as Brooke mentioned, we actually don't earn money from this podcast, but your listenership is the payment. So please keep listening, keep commenting, keep rating us, and keep inviting your friends to listen with you. I believe the world changes through stories, so our stories matter and our stories are a key way to create a more equitable world. Thank you again and see you next week.